0: Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California.
1: Two older men were having a conversation one night and the one guy turned to the other and says, "Uh, you know, man, I had... The best dinner last night at a restaurant. The other guy goes, really? What was the name of the restaurant? And the guy goes, hmm, what do you call that plant that has thorns? You mean a rose? He goes, yeah. Hey, Rose, where did we eat last night? (laughs) It's important to remember things, especially your wife's name. Because we forget how easily we forget how faithful God is, and the more we walk with Him in the wilderness and the mountaintops, we often forget. I think we can all agree on that. I started a sermon series last week called Preparation for the Promised Land, and we're looking at Deuteronomy, which is in the Old Testament. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament. And what's the name of those five books? Pentateuch. They were all written by Moses. The Holy Spirit inspired him and gave him the words to write. Last week, we talked about the importance of believing because Israel, it says, didn't believe God and therefore was left from the land. And so 40 years passes by because the people are complaining and grumbling, not believing God. And then that whole generation had to die, pass away. Now Joshua is going to lead Israel into the promised land. Deuteronomy means second law. Deu, deus, deuter is second, and namos in Greek is law. So it's not the giving of a second law. It's the restating and the renewal of the covenant to Moses. And so Moses spends the whole book talking about how great God is. And he keeps saying, remember how great God is, because that's going to get us through stuff. So the thesis today is, in order to remain faithful, one must remember what God has done. We have to remember what God has done, because the Bible is filled with promises of God. He leads us, and He's always faithful to us. And after the people would realize how great God is, they would often build an altar. Noah, when he was rescued from the flood, he built an altar and gave an offering to God. Jacob, when he had the vision of God, he built an altar and poured oil on it, and he named that place Bethel, which means house of God. And then Israel, after being rescued from Egypt, They had a huge praise and worship service in Exodus chapter 15, led by Moses. Did you know Moses sang, by the way? He wrote songs. He leads them in a singing worship service. So again, Deuteronomy is the renewal of the Mosaic covenant to the new generation. It was passed down to them, and they're about to enter the promised land. So when we talk about land today and those kind of things, we do know that our church, God has... Physical land for us. And we really feel that this year God's going to do something to open up some land so that we can have a place for ourselves. But also, I want to encourage you to think what is your land? Like, what promises have you been waiting for God to fulfill? And I always say, you know, your miracle is just around the corner. Don't give up now. Keep praying, keep seeking the Lord. And he will open up that land for you someday. We're going to talk about different things that we need to remember. And we're going to talk about things like election in regards to our calling in God. And we're going to talk about different doctrinal things. What I'm doing is I'm choosing these words in the book, but I'm tying it into God's teaching on the subject matter as well. Kind of like a broad overview of theology today. So the first thing we need to do is remember your calling. Did you know that God called you to himself? And he called us to be a kingdom of priests. So what is a kingdom of priests? What is that? Well, first of all, the word kingdom would imply that there's a king. So when God called Israel out, he said, you'll be a kingdom of priests. And when he calls the church out, which is the New Testament believers, we are a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? Teach, what else? They minister. They pray for the people, right? They act on God's behalf. So, guess what? We're priests in the Lord. And we don't need to go to a human priest. We go straight to God because Jesus is our high priest and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so, when we pray, we pray knowing that God hears our prayers because of Jesus. So we remember our calling. What has God called us out of? Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Paul writes, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. What's the domain of darkness? Not knowing God. And if you think about the realm of darkness, do you know there's a dark realm, spiritual realm? There's a battle between good and evil. So the evil would be the darkness. When you think about darkness, what do you think of? Not being able to see, fear, things like this. But God has delivered us out of that domain of darkness, and I love this, transferred us to the kingdom of Jesus, God's beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So if not for God's grace and Him making the first move, we would all be in darkness. And when you're in the dark, unless there's light, you can't see. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So the Bible explains this spiritual truth by referring to those who are in the dark as what would be called spiritually dead. In the fact, the Bible says you were dead in your transgressions. You were dead in your sins. So can dead people come out of deadness? No. It has to be a work of outside yourself. When Jesus raised people from the dead, they didn't raise themselves. God raised them. So it's the same thing with us. If we're spiritually dead and in the dark, only God can turn the light on and raise us. That begins our faith walk. When we're saved because of God's grace, because of his calling, we now have a new life and a new purpose. Romans 8.30 is a very important verse where Paul writes, And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice how many he pronouns are in there. We can't do these things for ourselves. It has to be an outside force, an outside power that opens our eyes and an outside power that calls us out of darkness. Now, calling is often referred to as election. You ever heard that? God elected you. You remember when you're a kid and you're sitting out there and you're waiting for the team leader to pick you for their team and there's like two guys, you're the team leaders and we're all sitting out there and you're hoping they call your name at least in the top 10, you know what I mean? Because you're like, you hate to be the one that's like 25, right? Well, think about this. God chose you to be on his team. We can't forget how important election is in regards to coming out of the darkness. There's two sides to the coin. You know what I mean? If I had a coin up here, you would see one side. You wouldn't see the other side. The two sides in this aspect are election and choice. Because if we don't have a choice, then we're robots. And that's not how God made us. He made us with a free will to choose. But yet, he also says, he elected us and chose us. So how does that work? I don't know. I mean, there's some things you just don't know. But it doesn't make it less true. Like, for instance, Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. But then just a few minutes later, he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, which is a choice. So how does that work? It works. I mean, I can sit here and try and, you know, give a full-on explanation of how that might work. But sometimes you just got to say, you know, God's ways are higher than ours. God's thoughts are better than ours. And he figured it out. But here's the cool thing about God's election and choosing us. When did this happen? Do you know when this happened? Ephesians 1.4, look what it says. For God chose us in him before he created the world. What? You mean God thought of you and chose you before you were even born? That's amazing. And that's how God works. God the Father made a choice to include you on his team, in his family, as a part of his kingdom of light, so that you didn't have to stay in the darkness. Now, you still had to make that choice. When he called you, but thank God he called you because you were dead. Dead people can't do anything. He turned the light on. Now that verse, Ephesians 1, 4, has many implications. One implication is every life is sacred. If God chose you before you were even born, because he knew you'd be born, every life is sacred in all stages, including the womb. Another implication is God is in charge, not me. And then another implication is I owe it all to him. I don't get any credit. There's no one in heaven say, hey, look what I did. They're all pointing to him and say, look what he did. So Moses realizes God's sovereignty and he assembles the people to hear God's word. And in Deuteronomy 4.10, Moses says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, and that's another word for Mount Sinai, which was the giving of the Ten Commandments, when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words, so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them my word to their children. So this verse gives four implications about the elect, the people that are called. First of all, we're supposed to assemble together as a church. The Greek word ecclesia is the word that's used as translated as church. It literally means assembly. It was used before the Bible. The Greeks used this word as any type of assembly. Jesus was the first to use it for the church, and Paul took it to a whole other level. But we're supposed to assemble together as the ecclesia. Next, We're supposed to hear the word, which is what we're doing today. But we don't stop just by hearing. We got to learn the word and we got to learn to revere the one who called you. And then we have to also teach the word to your children and your grandchildren. And that's how they remember. And that's how you remember. Every time you tell someone about God's faithfulness, you remember his faithfulness. And we need to pass it on generation to generation because there's a lot of people who have either forgotten or never knew. Next, remember your rescue. God called you and he rescued you. God called Israel out and rescued him. That whole book is called Exodus, right? Don't you love hearing stories of how God rescued someone? I'll never forget when I was attending 12-step meetings. And I would hear these men, like 120 men in this room, and they would share about how their lives were changed. And I always thought to myself, man, I thought I was the only one that had it bad. But when I heard other people talk about it, it helped me realize I'm not the only one that has it bad. In fact, they have it a lot worse than me. That's what happens when we share our rescue stories. It helps grow our faith. When we hear other stories, it helps our faith grow and it puts our troubles in perspective. So remember, Israel's rescued out of Egypt. We are rescued out of Egypt in a sense because that represents spiritual oppression in that time. They were enslaved by Pharaoh. So God rescues us. On a daily basis. So again, Moses says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. How? With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So what did God rescue them for? He rescues them. He says, Moses, tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they can do whatever they want. Is that what he said? No, he said, let my people go so that they can worship and serve me. Because here's the thing, and people don't realize this. As the great theologian Bob Dylan once said, you're going to serve somebody. So you serve Pharaoh, or you can serve me, God says. True freedom is serving God. Because he's the one that sets you free. Imagine yourself 400 years enslaved and oppressed. Doing work for the Pharaoh, the king, not getting anything in return, sweating, toiling, 400 years. Then God sends Moses and says, Let my people go. And he delivers them out of it. Do you not think that Israel was tired and worn out? I would be. That's why God stresses to them remember and observe the Sabbath, because God brought them into rest. In your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to read through this because Hebrews is in the New Testament, and it's written to a congregation of Jews who had become Christian, but some were falling away back to a works-oriented religion rather than understanding of grace. They wanted to work. In chapter 4, the writer, the author says, therefore, let us... Fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith. So in other words, he's saying, you heard the word and you started off with faith, but it wasn't united with faith. It's become hard work. For we who have believed enter the rest. Now, where does that sound like? That sounds like the whole story of Israel, right? Those who believe got to enter the rest of the land. And then he goes on, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said, somewhere concerning on the seventh day, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's in this creation story. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. He again fixes a certain day. Today, today, saying through David, after so long time has been said before, today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, He would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works as God did from his. What's this rest about? Spiritual rest. When Jesus stood in Jerusalem and said, everyone who's worn out, burnt out on religion, tired of trying to Prove your worth, come to me, and I'll give you rest. It's a spiritual rest. That's our Sabbath. A lot of people get caught up in this whole Sabbath thing, (laughs) but really what it's about is resting in Christ, and resting in His grace. And here's the greatest thing about that. Romans 5.1, read it with me. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, a lot of people try to get peace with God in all kinds of ways. How do you get peace with God? Through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Deuteronomy 15, 15, again, Moses says, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So God is saying the commands only work if there's a relationship. You ever heard the saying, rules without relationship leads to rebellion? Rules without relationships lead to rebellion. If you're a parent, you have rules. But there has to be some type of understanding of relationship. Like you're the father, you're the kid. And if you have three kids, like we did, we still do, but they're older. But when you're all in the same house, you have three kids, they outnumber the parents. Right? But there's still rules. Because there's relationship. Without that relationship, there's rebellion. And it's the same thing with God. God wants you to have a relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you remember your rescue? Do you remember how God rescued out of darkness? When I was 29, I tried a bunch of different ways to self-medicate, try to do everything I could that God would love me. I was riding my bike to the beach. And I said, God, if you're real, you got to show me. A few days later, my phone rings, and the guy on the other line goes, Hey, is Bob there? And I said, I'm sorry you have the wrong number. And before he hung up, he goes, Jesus loves you, man. What? What was that? It's like, wrong number? Jesus loves you? Then the next day, I'm in a mall, crowded mall, and there's a guy sitting on a bench, and he looks at me, and he says, Hey, man, Jesus loves you. And I look back, and he was gone. And then... A couple of weeks later, I'm in a parking lot full of cars and had a bright pink VW bug with fluorescent paint written all over, Jesus loves you. And I remember that prayer, God, if you're real, you got to show me. And he did. It took three times, but he answered my prayer. Changed my life. Did I become perfect? I'll never be perfect. But the one who is perfect lives in me by his spirit. I was set free. I felt like a weight had been lifted off my shoulder. That's what we need to remember. Talk about it. Share it with other people. It helps you remember. Next, you got to remember your victories. God fought for Israel. As Moses prepares Israel for possessing the land, he reminds them of God's faithfulness. So he says in Deuteronomy 7.18, you shall not be afraid of them, the enemies. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all to Egypt. Do you agree that God did an incredible victory through the biggest empire of that time, Egypt, to get those people out of there? Pharaoh was not given up easily. So Moses is saying, don't forget the victory that you've had in Christ. Has God done victories in your life? Remember them. Write them down. Share them with your kids. You know, I remember my dad, before he passed away in 2004, shortly before that, his leg was amputated due to diabetes, and they were going to amputate it higher. He didn't want that because it would affect him not being able to wear a prosthetic leg. So we're in the hospital, and we're gathered around praying, and my dad came to faith in Christ later in life after I did. I mean, he believed there was a God, but he didn't know who that God was. So he looks at me and he says, Son, pray that God would heal my leg. I believe he can heal it. I go, You know what? You're right, Dad. God can do anything he wants. If there's a God, he can do anything he wants. Doesn't mean he's going to do it that way, but yeah. So we're praying. All of a sudden, his leg moves, opens his eyes. He goes, Did you touch my leg? I said, No, but we're praying, Dad, that God would touch your leg. They wheel him down to surgery. About 15 minutes later, the doctor comes out and says, I don't know how to explain this. That's not the same leg we saw yesterday. It's totally healed. God can do anything. That victory changed people's lives. My dad was known as the miracle man at Hogue Hospital. I wish people would document miracles more. You know, in the medical community, right? Because whenever the doctor comes out and says, literally says, I don't know how to explain this, that's because you can't. You can't logically explain that. So we got to remember our victories. We got to remember your testing. Now, this is hard because raise your hand if you like tests. I don't like tests. Stresses me out. But God uses testing to discipline us. In Deuteronomy 8, 2, Moses says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Why did he do that? To humble and test you. In order to know what was in your heart. So he's saying, I know what's in your heart. I wanted you to know what's in your heart. Whether or not you would keep my commands. And in Deuteronomy 8, 5. You are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Why does God use testing? Why does God discipline us? To grow our faith. In Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. Read it with me. my son. Do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts his son. The word discipline in Hebrew is to instruct, correct, and in Greek is to train a child up with correction. So if you have kids, you understand the importance of disciplining. Discipline is hard work. Like if you go to the gym and you're training muscles, You're disciplining those muscles to strengthen. It's not easy. You know what else is not easy? Playing the accordion. (laughs) Let me explain something. This was the first instrument I learned on when I was six years old when I started on this instrument. Now think about how difficult it is not only to remember the notes but to not be able to see them. This whole left side of the accordion, you can't see it. You just memorize it, right? So like when you learn a C chord, okay, you you know where it is. F, G, okay? Now, that's kind of boring, right? But what if you go... It's only left, right? Then you add the right, right? Okay, you should all thank God that at eight years old I switched to piano, right? Because the accordion has its own thing, right? You know, or it's polka or it's, you know, whatever. The point is, that was really hard. I had a great music teacher. She pushed me, especially when I switched to piano. I loved piano. Couldn't get me off things. She pushed me really hard. She tested me. She put me in front of people in recitals, which scared the you-know-what out of me. Why did she do that? Because she saw potential. And she wasn't going to be satisfied with mediocreness. And neither was I. Well, guess what? God sees potential in you. And he doesn't satisfy with where you are right now. He wants you to get past that. He wants you to grow. He wants you to develop and be trained up and disciplined. And he uses trials and testing to do that. Why do we run away from that? Because it's not fun. But God disciplines us. But then the author of Hebrews goes on. He says he chastens us. That word in Greek is the same word that is used when Jesus was scourged. Before he was crucified with a whip. Why in the world would God do something like that to someone he loves? Well, first we need to look in context. You know, when people pull certain passages out without the context... It's confusing, to say the least, and like off a little bit, right? So if we look at Hebrews, where we were in chapter 12, let's go to chapter 12. And so we left off with, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. And then in verse 7, the author says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you were without discipline, then you are illegitimate. In other words, what father doesn't want to discipline his son? Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits, God, and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness, all discipline for the moment, Seems not to be joyful, yeah, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, it leads to peaceful fruit and righteousness. I love what Pastor Sam says. He says, punishment is payment for past behavior and produces guilt and shame. But discipline is training for future behavior and produces perseverance. There's a difference between punishment Discipline. Discipline is for future, and that's what God is concerned about. He wants you to be living the vibrant life He wants you to live. So in this context, I believe what the author is talking about is the Word of God whips us. In fact, let's go back to chapter 4 of Hebrews, where we were talking about rest and the Sabbath. It says here, Verse 11, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through in the same example of disobedience. So he says, don't be disobedient like Israel. And then in verse 12, he says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of the soul and the spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What does that? The Word of God. It's the surgical instrument God uses to whip us into shape in a good way. If we're willing. Right? Have you ever been convicted by the Word of God? What do you do with that conviction? Well, you ask God, what do you want me to do with that? And then do it. So now back to Deuteronomy. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order that you know what was in your heart. So God does that to show us what's in our heart, that we come to understand what's in our heart. And Israel needed to be tested, and God uses testing in our life. Next, remember your rebellion. Have you ever rebelled against God? In Deuteronomy nine seven, Moses says, Remember and do not forget how you provoke the Lord. Have you ever provoked the Lord? Thank God we have a gracious God, because I provoke Him all the time. God is amazing that... I can feel the things I do and say the things I say to him half the time, and he doesn't just strike me dead right there, right? That's grace. In fact, this provocation that's being talked about here in Deuteronomy happened in Exodus 17, where Israel had just been rescued, and a few days later, they're complaining about not having water. And this is the second time they complain about not having water, so God instructs Moses to strike the rock, So that water would come out. Water comes pouring out of the rock. And in the New Testament, this is the awesome thing about the New Testament. It helps complete the picture. It says, And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? Christ. That rock that Moses struck, that rock was Christ. When we get to the Gospel of John, Jesus confirms that. In John chapter 7, it says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those he believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's so much in there. but Here's what I want to understand. Even in the rebellion of Israel, we find out later that Jesus is the rock from which water comes out, and we find out what that water is. What is it? The Holy Spirit. The living water is the Holy Spirit. Then when someone believes in Christ, we receive His Spirit. And that is eternal living water. In Deuteronomy 9, 7, from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. And rebellion is the word Marah. And in Exodus 15, 23, it says when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah means bitter. What's he saying? He says from the moment you came out of Egypt, You were rebellious against God, and you became bitter. The water was bitter. Rebellious people become bitter, right? If you hold on to anger, you become bitter. The other day, I was talking to someone who claims to be an atheist, and I said, so you believe there's no God? Yeah, because he was getting on me about how can you believe there's a God? I said, so you believe there's no God? Yeah, so you believe... There's no God. Yeah, you're questioning my belief in God, but not questioning your belief there's no God? That's faith. I've just chosen to believe in the God of the Bible. You're still activating faith. Can anyone prove there's no God? No. So here's what I find out. A lot of times when people are atheists, really I find that oftentimes is they're angry at God. And the question that should be asked is, when did you get angry with God? They don't want to talk about that, right? But they need to. What is this? Was someone taken away from you? Was something that you wanted not happen? What, what caused the anger towards God? Because bitterness keeps you from getting better. It's okay to be angry, but at some point, you've got to let go. And then remember God's faithfulness. The last thing Moses does before he dies at the end of Deuteronomy, he sings a song. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy chapter 31. So what happens is Moses is about to commission Joshua. And then God says in verse 19, now, Moses, write this song and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it on their lips so that this song may be a witness for me against the sons of Israel. For When I bring them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to their fathers, then they will turn to other gods and serve them. What's happening is God's giving Israel a glimpse of their upcoming captivity to Babylon. He said, once you get in the land, you're going to screw up. You're going to start worshiping the gods of the pagans. So Moses, sing a song that they'll be able to remember about my faithfulness. So Moses wrote the song and taught it to Israel. And you know, one of the best lyrics in this song is in Deuteronomy 32.7. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you, your elders, and they'll explain it to you. What God's saying is, Israel, when you blow it big time, when you forget how faithful I am, ask your fathers, your mothers, ask the older people, they will remind you of how faithful I am. That's what it's all about. Remember, share it with people. Share it with generations so that the story can be passed down of how faithful God is. I want Philip to come up and lead us again in a couple of verses of Great is Thy Faithfulness because when we sang it earlier, I don't really think we meant it. I want you to sing it remembering what God has done for you. Read this verse with me, Lamentations three twenty-two through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is God's faithfulness. <laughs> che A song that's written a long time ago, and we still sing today. That's what the Psalms are. That's what songs are for the Lord. And we need to remember, we need to sing more about God's faithfulness, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you that we can come together and assemble as the people who are called out, part of your family from before the foundation of the world. And I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not answered your call to come into a relationship with you, that they would do that in their heart and they would say, Lord Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. I believe in you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, for taking my place so that I could live eternally with you in heaven. Thank you for rising from the dead so that I can rise with you as well. And Lord, I might not understand it all right now, but as much as I know, I believe. And I ask the living waters, the Holy Spirit, to come into my life so that I can have eternal life. In Jesus' name,
0: amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you join us for a Sunday service. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegatecbc.com.
2: Right